what we're going to talk about today is making your referral sources illegal. And uh, just as what, just by way of background, uh, as probably most of you know, the baby boomers are retiring at a record number, uh, record level, and their life expectancies are greater than uh, what we've seen in the past. So, as a healthcare provider or supplier, why should you care? Why do you care if uh, there's going to be more and more uh, baby boomers retiring? Uh, well, obviously, because uh, the demand for healthcare services is, is only going to increase. So you're going to have more boomers uh, competing for limited healthcare services and limited dollars. Uh, and as a healthcare provider, you also want to be in that competitive pool uh, for those dollars. Uh, I know that you, just like me, are entrepreneurs. Uh, you want to get your next patient or your next client uh, in the door. Uh, but there are certain ways to do it uh, legally and ways that are not so legal or, frankly, are illegal. Uh, the healthcare industry, whether we like it or not, is based on referrals and marketing. That's just the way the, uh, the American system is set up. Uh, and so you uh, can't wait for your next client or patient to walk through the door. Uh, you have to figure out, just like every other entrepreneur in this country, how you're going to get your next patient or customer. Uh, so why can't you market your healthcare business any way you want? Uh, well, like any industry, uh, and particularly in the healthcare industry, there are rules and regulations which uh, kind of put guardrails around what you can and what you can't do. Uh, and I, like I, I've told many of my clients, uh, you are involved in one of the most highly regulated industries uh, in this country. And so, uh, and, and because that there are limited dollars out there uh, potentially for you to be paid for your services, uh, you have to follow these guidelines. Uh, and it's not the patients uh, or your, your clients who are setting up these guidelines. It's the people who pay you for the services. And when I talk about payers, I'm talking about the federal government, particularly Medicare. I'm talking about the state governments, particularly Medicaid, or a private insurer. Uh, they are the ones who are paying for your services, as you know. So what the government doesn't want and private payers don't want to see is uh, you providing incentives for patients to use your services. Uh, and the reason is because there may be a tendency for the patient or your customers and for you uh, to provide services that may not be necessary. Now, I'm not saying that uh, as a healthcare provider or supplier, you are doing that, but I'm just telling you that is what the concern is from the payer's perspective that if you offer incentives uh, to marketing companies or patients to use your services, there could be the tendency to overutilize those services. Uh, like I say, this does not mean you can't market your services to patients or customers, uh, but it does mean that there are certain laws or contractual terms that are going to restrain the manner in which you market your healthcare services. So what are those laws that we uh, talk about and we deal with every day? Uh, well, uh, 
they impact your referral sources and your referral sources are can be anywhere from uh, long-term care facilities, home health agencies, pharmacies, physicians, and hospitals, uh, or they could be your own employees if you're paying them to generate business for you, or they could be independent contractor salespeople. And with those in mind, there are certain laws, uh, particularly on the federal level, that we deal with. And what we want to avoid is what we call the F word. And the F word in our context is fraud. So if you're marketing your healthcare services or somebody else is marketing uh, your healthcare services on your behalf, you have to be aware of the federal and state anti-fraud laws. Uh, and I'm gonna go over a couple of the big ones uh, now, um, but there, believe me, there are a number of them out there that we're not gonna discuss today, but these are the ones that uh, you have to be familiar with. The first one is what's known as the AKS or the Federal Anti-Kickback Statute. Uh, this is the big one. This is the one that uh, providers uh, and government and state, federal government and state officials uh, routinely tout when they uh, uh, go out and enforce uh, regulatory uh, issues. Uh, and it's a felony statute, unfortunately. Uh, it applies to healthcare providers. Now, it is a intent-based statute. So to violate the statute, you have to knowingly and willfully do what the statute prevents. Uh, and what does it prevent? Well, you can't offer or pay, and that's critical there. Uh, it doesn't only apply to you paying uh, to get referrals. It, al it also applies to offering to pay. Uh, and what do, what do you have to offer or pay in order to violate the statute? Uh, the term that's used in the anti-kickback statute is remuneration. And remuneration basically means anything of value. And it doesn't have to just be cash. It could be a benefit, uh, it could be a gift card, anything that would benefit uh, the person to whom you are giving or offering to pay uh, for, the re for the referral or for their services. Uh, it applies to furnishing or arranging for the furnishing of payment uh, to be made under a federal health care program. Now, federal health care program, most people think of Medicare, but there are a number of uh, federal health care programs that fall within the ambit of that definition. And uh, Medicare obviously is the big one, but it's also Medicaid. Uh, and it also could include other programs that involve federal dollars. So that's the federal anti-kickback statute. The other big one that we talk about is the beneficiary inducement statute. This one is very similar to the anti-kickback statute, uh, but this is a little bit different in that it prohibits a healthcare provider from offering or giving, giving anything of value to a Medicare beneficiary that you know or should know is likely to persuade that person to purchase an item that is payable by a federal health care program. So again, uh, a little bit different from the anti-kickback statute, the beneficiary inducement statute targets providers who are offering benefits or incentives to Medicare uh, 
are Medicaid beneficiaries. Uh, so again, we we have that term, uh, anything of value, uh, uh, remuneration. So if you're going to provide incentives for your customers to come into your door or your uh, patients that are covered by a Medicare or Medicaid program, you need to make sure you don't violate the beneficiary inducement statute. Now, the beneficiary inducement statute does have a uh, a caveat or a carve out in that it does not prohibit giving incentives that are of nominal value. And the government has defined nominal value uh, to mean no more than $15 per item or $75 in the aggregate to any one beneficiary on an annual basis. So if you're going to give out anything of value to a Medicare, Medicaid beneficiary, you need to keep track of who you're giving it to and the value of that item, whether it could be a, a gift card uh, or anything that the beneficiary could use in order to um, in order that you use to attract to bring them into your office. The last one I'm going to talk about is probably the most complicated, and that is the federal Stark Law. The federal Stark Law only applies if a couple of uh, uh, entities or persons are involved. A physician has to be involved in the transaction. Uh, the physician has to have some type of financial relationship, and financial relationships meet, could be a uh, an ownership interest or a payment relationship. So if the physician is getting uh, something of value through a payment or has an ownership interest in your entity, then the Stark Law could possibly be implicated. Uh, the Stark Law only applies to certain what the uh, federal government has called designated health services. So the Stark Law does not apply to every kind of service uh, that you could possibly provide. Uh, and I've listed on this slide uh, the designated health services. Now, the ones that I see uh, that implicate the federal Stark Law uh, the most are clinical lab services, uh, physical therapy services, occupational therapy services, outpatient speech language pathology services. Uh, skip down a little bit, we go to DME and supplies, and then home health services. So if you're in an industry that is providing any of those types of services, you have to be aware of the federal Stark Law if there is a physician involved in referring uh, business to you and there's a payment going to that physician or there's some kind of ownership uh, relationship. Now, the federal Stark Law is much more complicated than what I've presented on these one or two slides, uh, but just know that if you, you have a doctor or physician involved, there's a financial relationship and it involves one of these designated health services, uh, you need to analyze that relationship under the Stark Law. Uh, there are exceptions to the Stark Law as there are exceptions to the anti-kickback statute, which we're going to get into. Um, one of the exceptions to the Stark Law that we see and that I, that I see used a lot is um, a healthcare provider can provide non-cash items to a physician uh, if the amount of those uh, 
the dollar amount of those non-cash items don't exceed $416, and that's for fiscal year 2019. So, um, like I said, both the anti-kickback statute and the Stark Law have exceptions. Now, the anti-kickback statute uh, exceptions are called safe harbors. So if you hear the term uh, safe harbor with respect to the anti-kickback statute, what that means is that in order to avoid uh, or try to avoid prosecution or getting into trouble uh, in violating the federal anti-kickback statute, you want to have your ship, meaning your your entity, your healthcare providing entity or supplying entity, go into a safe harbor, uh, meaning that you're kind of, instead of floating out on the sea of potential enforcement action uh, by the federal or state government for violating the anti-kickback statute, you are going to steer your ship into a safe harbor, meaning you're gonna try to comply with some of the exceptions of the anti-kickback statute. Uh, so basically, a safe harbor is a hypothetical fact situation such that if the arrangement falls within it, then the anti-kickback statute uh, is not violated. And we're going to talk about some of the more important ones, or the ones that I see the most uh, uh, in, in counseling clients. So I just want to make sure everybody understands if the arrangement doesn't fall within a safe harbor, that does not mean necessarily that the arrangement violates the anti-kickback statute. Rather, if it uh, falls within a safe harbor, uh, we try to analyze that agreement to make sure that under the language of the anti-kickback statute itself, the applicable case law and other published guidance that we can fit the fact situation into one of those safe harbors. So there are five safe harbors uh, that are particularly relevant to providers and suppliers. The first one that we're gonna talk about is the safe harbor for small, for small investment interest. So <clears throat> if there's an investment going to be made in a small entity, the safe harbor says that remuneration which again means giving something of value, does not include a return on the investment if a number of standards are met. And one of the more important standards of this small investment safe harbor is that no more than 40% of the investment can be owned by persons who can generate business for or transact business with the entity, and no more than 40% of the gross revenue may come from business generated by investors. So if you have investors who want to invest and in your small uh, business entity, healthcare provider, and they are referral sources, you may wanna try to fit uh, their uh, ownership interest into the small investment safe harbor. The next one I wanna talk about is the safe harbor for space rental. Say you're a healthcare provider and you uh, want to rent space within uh, a, a space that is next to or within a lease agreement with a uh, referral provi uh, a referral source. Um, there is a 
safe harbor uh, to the anti-kickback statute, which provides that giving something of value doesn't include a lessee's payment to a lessor as long as the five standards are met, which I've listed here. Now, the most important one is, in my view, is the fifth one. Uh, the aggregate rental charge must be set in advance. So if there's going to be a lease agreement, the rental agreement, has, the rental charge, excuse me, has to be set in advance. It has to be consistent with fair market value, and it cannot take into account business generated between the, the lessor and the lessee. Uh, that's, the, that's what, uh, if there's going to be an enforcement action, if you're renting space, uh, from a referral source, uh, that's going to be the most important one that the enforcement agencies are going to look at. They will look at the other ones, but primarily they're going to look at that that fifth one. Now, there is also a safe harbor uh, for equipment rental, which basically is the same as the safe harbor for uh, space rental. And again, uh, the most important one is the aggregate rental value charge must be sent in, must be set set in advance, be consistent with fair market value, and not take into account business generated between the lessor and the lessee. Uh, another one that we see, and this is the one that I use and most healthcare attorneys use most often in making sure your referral sources uh, fit within one of the safe harbors of the anti-kickback statute is the personal services and management contract safe harbor. So remuneration does not include any payment made to an independent contractor uh, if, and you have to meet all of these standards, these five standards, uh, excuse me, these eight standards, but, but the most important one is the compensation must be set in advance, be consistent with fair market value, must not take into account any business generated between the parties. So again, if you are hiring an independent contractor to do marketing for you, uh, basically what this anti-kickback statute safe harbor says is that you cannot pay that independent contractor based on uh, the amount of business that they generate for you. You cannot pay them on a commission basis. Rather, that compensation in the agreement has to be set in advance. It has to be consistent with fair market value and cannot uh, take into account any business generated between the parties. So if you're thinking about entering into an agreement to pay an independent contractor on the amount of business that the independent contractor generates for you, uh, you can't pay them based on a floating commission basis. Uh, and that's one that really trips up a lot of uh, healthcare providers when they want to hire an independent contractor to do uh, marketing for them. Now, there is a difference between the safe harbor I just talked about and which dealt with independent contractors and the safe harbor for employees. So if you have employees, of your healthcare entity that you want to do marketing for them, there is a safe harbor that actually addresses uh, your employees. So 
there are a couple of requirements here. First of all, there has to be an employer and employee relationship. Uh, the employee, uh, by definition, cannot be an independent contractor. The employee has to be a bona fide employee. You have to be a bona fide employer for this safe harbor uh, to be invoked. Uh, and that employee can do marketing for you, and you can pay that uh, employee to do marketing for you and pay that employee on a commission basis. Uh, there are some courts, federal courts, who have looked at this safe harbor employee, uh, safe harbor uh, for employees, and have questioned this phrase for employment in the furnishing of any item or service for which payment may be made in whole or in part under Medicare. Uh, what the federal courts really kind of look at when they look at this safe harbor and you're trying to fit your situation into the safe harbor is that some federal courts are saying you can't just pay your employees to go out and do marketing for you and pay them on a commission basis. They have to be doing something further and that further is in the definition of the safe harbor. They have to be assisting you in furnishing items or services uh, for which payment uh, may be made under Medicare or Medicaid. So they have to be doing something, either reaching out to potential referral sources, uh, doing education to those providers, uh, helping you uh, in, inside the office, uh, fill orders, uh, they, so they just can't be out there doing uh, marketing and getting paid a commission for that. So even though uh, many uh, providers think, well, I've, I've got an employee, the safe harbor says I can pay them a commission to just to go out and do marketing, you have to be cognizant of the federal courts who have strictly interpreted uh, this statute. Uh, so we've, we've talked a lot about Medicare and uh, how the federal government is, is uh, uses these uh, statutes to enforce uh, prohibitions and, and setting, up, setting up guidelines for Medicare. But the federal government is not the only player uh, out there. Uh, the states are also involved because as you know, the Medicaid is a federal and state uh, partnership. Uh, where states get Medicare, uh, excuse me, get federal government dollars for their Medicaid program through their FMAP. So all states have statutes prohibiting kickbacks, fee splitting, patient brokering, uh, or self-referrals. Self uh, some states, but not all states, have anti-fraud statutes that only apply when the payer is a government health care program. Uh, so some states will have anti-kickback statutes that only apply to their Medicaid program. Other states have anti-kickback or anti-fraud statutes that apply. It doesn't matter who the payer is, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, or a commercial private insurance company. So when you're analyzing your fact situation under the anti-kickback statute, you have to be cognizant of the fact that uh, the state in which you are doing business, so not only the state in which you are uh, you're, you're registered or uh, 
incorporated, but any state in which you're doing business, you have to look at that state's uh, program uh, and rules and regulations to determine if there are also any federal uh, or state um, guidelines and requirements. Now, we talked a little bit about the employee versus the independent contractor when we talked about the anti-kickback statute. And I wanna go into that difference a little bit more in detail. Um, the federal government has repeatedly voiced concern about percentage-based compensation arrangements involving 1099 independent contractor sales agents. And what does that mean? That means, again, if you are thinking about hiring a marketing company or a person and uh, not uh, employing them, but using them as a 1099 independent contractor, the federal government has put out uh, opinions uh, saying basically that you cannot pay that independent contractor based on commission. There is a advisory opinion uh, that the federal uh, OIG put out, number 06-02, uh, which says that percentage compensation arrangements, uh, because they relate to the volume or value of business generated between the parties, are inherently problematic under the federal anti-kickback statute. So <clears throat> um, I'm not gonna go into this in great detail, but Again, if there is a, if you want to hire an independent contractor to do your marketing for them, uh, what I'm basically telling you is you cannot pay them on a commission basis based on the amount of business they generate for you. Uh, I uh, speak about or uh, write about in the slide uh, a case in 1996 uh, that came out of Florida. Uh, in which the Florida Appeals Court said that uh, uh, the agreement between the, a DME supplier and a marketing company was illegal and unenforceable because of the marketer's receipt of a percentage of the sales it generated for the DME supplier violated the federal anti-kickback statute. So in a number of, uh, number of years, but more recently, there have been a number of enforcement actions involving commission payments to independent contractors. If you're going to pay an independent contractor, again, uh, make sure it complies with the federal anti-kickback statute. Now, what a lot of uh, my clients ask me is that, well, what if I don't want to take Medicare or Medicaid patients and I just want to pay an independent contractor for marketing uh, my business, and I wanna pay that independent contractor on a commission basis. Uh, well, again, the OIG has spoken on this uh, scenario and said that even if uh, the arrangement will only focus on commercial payments and there's a carve out for Medicare or Medicaid, there still may be a violation of the anti-kickback statute, uh, particularly if you have another arrangement um, with that marketing company uh, that deals with Medicare and, and Medicaid payments and uh, their marketing uh, of the for those uh, particular programs. I won't get into that in great detail, but again, if you think you're just going to carve out the Medicare and Medicaid from your healthcare business and hire an independent contractor to do marketing, 
make sure that you don't run afoul of the OIG uh, and um, it's, a, it's advisory opinions. So having said all that, what, do you, what happens if you wanna use a marketing company? Uh, if you want to use a marketing company that generates patients, and I use a DME supplier as an example, uh, but this could pertain to any type of uh, supplier or provider that uh, receives Medicare or Medicaid reimbursement. Uh, again, I, I want to stress that don't pay commissions to the marketing company for generating that business to you. Um, uh, unless it uh, complies, make sure your business complies with the uh, personal services and management contract safe harbor. And again, that doesn't mean that you can pay commission. It means that you have to pay that uh, marketing entity based on the, uh, within the guidelines of the, uh, of the, uh, of that safe harbor. Now, I want to talk briefly about um, why you may be asking yourself why the federal government cares that you're hot, that you're want to pay commissions to a in, to an independent contractor, whereas you can pay commissions to an employee. And the bottom line is, as I show, as I state on on slide 34, it's control. The federal government believes, and, and most state governments believe that. If an employee is doing marketing for you, you have more control over that employee than you do an independent contractor. And that's the bottom line. Uh, the independent contractors are less accountable to you uh, as a healthcare provider in marketing your services. You don't know what the in independent contractor is uh, saying about uh, to your potential referral sources about you, about reimbursement. Uh, about Medicare and Medicaid. And the government draws the line where it says, if you're an employee, uh, your employer has a little bit more control. They can do training for you. They can uh, uh, go out and watch how you uh, perform your services. And um, it, it's, it's a little bit uh, better off from the government's perspective that uh, you have that ability to rein in your your employees uh, where you may not have that opportunity to rein in your um, marketing agents or independent contractors. Um, a lot of commentators have and continue to suggest that uh, the federal government broaden the employee safe harbor to independent contractors based on a commission basis. And, the bottom line is uh, the federal government has said we have declined to adopt this approach because we're aware of many ab examples of abusive practices by sales personnel who are paid as independent contractors and who are not under appropriate supervision. Okay. Further, if the, if the individuals and entities desire to pay a salesperson on the basis of the amount of business they generate, to be exempt from civil or criminal prosecution, they should make these salespeople employees where they can and should exert appropriate supervision for the individual's acts. So it's not just me saying this, it's the federal government pronouncing uh, these guidelines with respect to independent contractor marketing agreements. 
So let me uh, switch uh, subjects a little bit here and talk about loan closet agreements, in particular how they uh, apply to uh, DME suppliers. Now, a loan uh, closeting agreement uh, basically means that a DME supplier can place inventory or a hospital in a physician's office, uh, but they have the, the loan closet agreement has to be for the convenience only of the hospital's or physician's patients. And the hospital or the physician cannot financially benefit from the inventory. Uh, another guideline or standard is if the DME supplier pays rent for a space uh, in which the consigned inventory is placed, the arrangement has to comply with the space rental safe harbor that we talked about previously. Uh, let me talk, switch gears a little bit now and talk about preferred, provide, preferred provider agreements. What is a preferred, preferred provider agreement? Again, I, I use DME suppliers as a, an example. Uh, a DME supplier uh, can enter into an agreement with a hospital uh, subject to patient choice, you can't uh, dictate this to the patient. It's up to the up to the patient to choose. Uh, the hospital will will recommend the DME supplier to its patients who are about to be discharged. Uh, the DME supplier can enter into a similar preferred provider agreement with a physician, a home health agency, a long-term care facility, or a wound care center. Those are just some examples. Uh, that you can possibly get your foot into the door in a hospital uh, and um, uh, have that hospital kind of uh, direct patients towards you if you uh, comply with these standards. Now let's talk about medical director agreements. I know a lot of entities, healthcare entities, have medical directors that they use <clears throat> Uh, to provide them guidance, to look over records, to make sure that uh, from a physician's point of view, they are operating uh, their uh, their healthcare entity uh, within certain uh, legal and medical standards. And uh, for medical director agreements, um, again, I use DME suppliers, but it could be a pharmacy, it could be any other type of healthcare provider if you want to want to enter into a medical director agreement. Uh, you can enter into an independent contractor agreement with a physician, but the medical director agreement must comply with the personal services and management contract safe harbor to the anti-kickback statute, which we talked about already, uh, and the personal services exception to the Stark uh, to the Stark law. Now, because there is a physician involved, and there's probably going to be payment made to this physician both the anti-kickback statute and the Stark law are going to be implicated. Some more of the requirements for the medical director agreement is that the physician must provide substantive services. So you can't just have a physician friend and tell the physician friend, hey, uh, it'd be great if you can, we can enter in an agreement, you don't have to do anything, but I'll, pay you some money for referrals uh, if you refer patients over to me. That's a no-no. The physician has to be providing substantive services to your entity. And the compensation that you can pay 
to the physician must be fixed one year in advance and be fair market value uh, equivalent of the physician's services. So those are the important highlights of what you need to do in order to meet uh, the requirements of the medical director agreement. What if you want to rent space from a physician or other type of uh, referral source? There are also guidelines for this. Uh, a supplier can rent space to or from a physician so long as the rental agreement complies with the space rental safe harbor to the anti-kickback statute, which we talked about, and the space rental exception to the Stark law. Now, again, because if you're renting space from a physician, there is a physician involved in a financial relationship with you, the Stark law uh, is going to be implicated. Um, you can also uh, rent space from a non-physician referral source uh, if the two bulletins that I have up on the screen are uh, complied with. One is the rental agreement must be in writing and have a term of at least one year, and the rent must be fixed one year in advance and be fair market value. Now, the last topic I want to talk about is something that is uh, fairly new, and that is with respect to clinical laboratories and ECRA. Uh, you've probably heard of ECRA, but uh, I'm going to give you the long and short of this uh, as quickly as I can. ECRA, which stands for Eliminating Kickbacks in Recovery Act of 2018, uh, was designed and passed with the intent to prohibit individuals from referring substance abuse patients in exchange for kickbacks to recovery homes, clinical treatment facilities, and laboratories. Now, I'm gonna focus on laboratories because uh, I've had a number of laboratory clients come to me and ask me how ECRA is going to affect them with respect to how they market their services. And what I wanna say generally is that uh, most commentators and healthcare attorneys agree that ECRA appears to exceed its underlying legislative intent. I won't go into deep detail about the legislative intent of ECRA, but uh, the way the law was drafted seems to go beyond what uh, its, uh, the originators had in mind when they drafted it. So what is ECRA? ECRA knowingly, excuse me, ECRA prohibits knowingly and willfully, so it's intent-based, you have to knowingly uh, and willfully violate it uh, in order to be prosecuted. So you can't solicit, receive, offer, or pay anything of value to a recovery home, clinical treatment facility, or laboratory with respect to services covered by a health benefit program. Now, the term health care benefit program includes any public or private plan or contract affecting commerce. So it's very broad in what it prohibits. Uh, like I said, I'm gonna focus on the term laboratory and ECRA defines a laboratory to include all clinical laboratories. So thus, uh, what I mean is all referrals for clinical 
clinical laboratory tests implicate ECRA regardless of whether the tests relate to substance abuse testing or treatment. Uh, some of the deficiencies of ECRA, uh, ECRA does not define the term referral. Uh, basically, uh, based on what ECRA does define, uh, ECRA is a new public uh, and private payer intent-based criminal anti-kickback law that prohibits any form of remuneration in exchange for referrals to or an individual's use of entities that meet the definition of recovery homes, clinical treatment facilities, and laboratories. And the referrals to laboratories include referrals to laboratories unrelated to substance abuse testing or treatment. So that's where the kick is in ECRA. Uh, typically, we found in the anti-kickback statute uh, that um, uh, it, was more, it was narrower uh, than ECRA. Now, ECRA has expanded referrals to laboratories to include uh, substance abuse testing and treatment and any other types of referrals to laboratories. There are eight exceptions to ECRA. I'm not going to go in detail of, uh, into those, um, but as this slide shows, there are uh, any kickback exceptions and safe harbors uh, that are inconsistent with ECRA and vice versa. ECRA is inconsistent with some of the corresponding anti-kickback exceptions and safe harbors. Uh, in addition, not only does ECRA apply, uh, you also, again, have to look at state laws applicable to kickbacks, fee splitting, and self-referrals uh, to make sure that your referrals to your clinical laboratories are not inconsistent with ECRA. So, uh, I'm not going to go into detail on this slide about what ECRA prohibits, but basically what ECRA is, uh, is saying is that you cannot pay uh, not only uh, independent contractors, but uh, the big impact uh, is that you can't uh, pay your employees to do marketing uh, to bring referrals in uh, to do your business. Uh, and that is a huge loss uh, for clinical laboratories. Um, there are certain exceptions to ECRA that we could possibly use as workarounds if you want to pay your employees to do some marketing uh, for you that don't involve paying them commissions. Uh, I have counseled clients on that, uh, a couple of workarounds that I'm not going to go into detail here. But mind you, there are, uh, ECRA is, is new. Uh, to my knowledge, there hasn't been any enforcement actions uh, brought against clinical laboratories yet. Um, but obviously, you don't want to be the first ones to, uh, to be the target of those enforcement actions. So uh, I, uh, I counsel you to speak with your healthcare attorney uh, or uh, your compliance director if you're involved in a clinical laboratory and um, your marketing, uh, your, your clinical laboratory to referral sources. Um, right now, uh, there are no other regulations out there 
regarding ECRA uh, to define it, to put guardrails around it, uh, to help uh, the healthcare industry manage uh, its its prohibitions. So uh, again, it's it's new. Uh, it was well intended, but it was poorly drafted, and uh, it's up to us uh, as attorneys, as compliance officers, and uh, healthcare providers to kind of manage through it. Now, having said that, <clears throat> I want to thank you for your time in uh, giving me your time in uh, allowing me to give my presentation today. I hope you learned something uh, of value. If you have any questions, again, uh, feel free to contact me or your healthcare attorney or your compliance officer.